0: Hello, and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tihan, and I am a portfolio manager with Red Wheel. In these CFA UK podcasts, we hope to shed light on issues facing portfolio managers, analysts, and others within the financial industry as we face the challenge of climate change. In this episode, I am joined by Mike Huggman. Mike is Director of Climate Finance at the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, one of the world's largest philanthropic funders of climate action. He is responsible for overseeing SIF's work on ending fossil fuel finance and accelerating the climate transition through the development and financing of climate action plans for corporates, banks, and countries. SIF funds a wide range of climate finance organizations, including CDP, Transition Pathway Initiative, Carbon Tracker, and also regulatory initiatives, such as the International Sustainability Standards Board and the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. They are also a supporter of Global Climate Insights, a research organization that I've particularly worked closely with. Previously, Mike worked as a portfolio manager for Ninety One. Before that, he worked as an economist and strategist for EMEA Capital and for Standard Bank London. From 2005 to 2007, he was a technical advisor to the Budget Office of the Nigerian Federal Ministry of Finance. So, Mike, to begin with, given your background as an emerging market portfolio manager, when you see the volatility in the markets these days, do you miss the portfolio management role or do you breathe this sigh of relief? <laughs>
1: uh, it's a very good uh, opening question. I, these are tough times. And, and I think, um, I mean, can, can laugh about it to an extent, but I think there's a very serious side to this, which is that we're obviously seeing a lot of fragility, both in the real economy and the financial system globally. And I, I think, you know, for former colleagues and, and peers in, in the emerging market space, I think there's a very real issue that we need to massively accelerate financing for the transition in EM. And at the moment, it's just the market conditions are very, very hostile towards that. So I, I think it, it's, um, it's something that f- philanthropy and the public sector need to actually do a lot more to address. And maybe we can come back to that a little bit later if we have time.
0: Absolutely. I, I think you have the nail on the head in terms of what impact volatility has on, on funding the transition in, in developing markets but before we get get to there maybe we just take a step back and you know if you can explain why you moved to sif you're working with chris holmes chairman of sif and the other trustees it's an extraordinary organization with what it does um can you give us a bit of a flavor for why you ended up in sif and, and how it is to to work with with the organization yeah so i, I was very blessed to have a, a fantastic
1: um set of experiences um across the financial system mainly as you said with an, an em focus both working in government in a in a major em um across banking hedge funds uh, you know f- fantastic six years with 91 and i and i think um, there's a there's an awful lot of great work going on by by leading uh, actors w- within those kinds of institutions but Right now, we, we just face a very, very real problem. You and I have talked before about this, John, that we need a massive acceleration of financial flows of corporate action and accountability, and ultimately of regulation. Um, we all know the numbers, but just you know, to remind your listeners, we're looking at a situation, if you view it from the finance side, that we probably need, by the end of the decade, to have nearly three trillion dollars globally of additional. Financing going into the broad transition um, and and of that, probably at least half a little more, whether you include China or not as a, as an EM, needs to be flowing into emerging markets and and right now, that system's just not working at the same time where we do have more willingness in developed markets, and again, you and I have talked about this the. Pledges that were being made in 2019, 2020, around 2050 net zero, those need to become much shorter term, much more focused. They need to be delivered concretely. And there needs to be an accountability mechanism, including the ability to push for the kind of enabling policy that business is going to need in order to, to sustainably drive the transition and so what's amazing about the children's investment fund foundation and and what um, our leadership and and our trustees created originally as a development foundation but over the last decade as a large funder of climate uh, action is is the ability to work with government with ngos providing public goods supporting regulation and policy thinking to re-deliver that systems change because it, it the scale of this transition is is so big and as we all know the time frame on which we're working is so very very tight that only that kind of systems change is going to work and that for me was the main driver in in wanting to go across and work with this amazing organization. The last thing I would say John it is just a personal thing um, you know there was a particular moment in 2019 I was um, uh, as maybe former colleagues wouldn't be totally surprised to here <laughs> one evening was reading a, a set of technical reports that were looking at long-term physical risk for sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Latin America, and knowing those countries, having invested in them, having lived in them, when you look at the kind of temperature projections, and we're sitting here on a day-to-day where the UK is coming to a standstill because we're going to be at 38, 39 degrees for 48 hours, if you know those countries and you understand what is going to happen uh, when we start hitting 45, 50 degrees year in, year out in those, in those countries, these regions are not viable. They're not physically viable. And three to four billion people live in those regions. And that ultimately for me is, is what drives this, because, we, you know, that, that is simply not something that we as a, as a civilization and a society globally can allow to happen. So, yeah, th- those were the main drivers for me.
0: There's so many different aspects to it. And, you know, at times with policy, it feels like we're just far behind what we need to do as portfolio managers. And we'll touch this later. We have got our fiduciary duty that we need to put first and foremost. You know, how do you keep positive with, with, with all these things?
1: I think there's a couple of things. One, are the people. I, I think that both in the climate community within civil society and philanthropy, when working with, those who are leading climate work um, in government, in international organisations, at the bank, the fund, um, you know, at central banks, but also in, in, in our industry, in, on the investment side, you, you really have so many of the most energetic, talented, motivated people now working in this space. And I think that is a huge issue. Um, you know, more and more people who are becoming activists And maybe again, we can return to that later, but I think that's a very important point. It's one of the reasons why CIF is such an extraordinary organisation, why Chris Hone and our trustees, because we bring um, activism to the space and that's what we're going to need. Everyone is going to have to become an activist and Chris is our chairman. Kate Hampton as our CEO, these are people who've spent their lives as activists. And and so seeing more and more brilliant people now becoming very activists in whatever they're doing as portfolio managers or as senior people in banks or insurers or asset owners becoming activists, I think that's very motivating. And then for all of the challenges, we are making progress. You know, we have thousands of companies and investors now who are committed to net zero. Um... We have great organizations that are emerging. Three years ago, I don't think any of us would have thought that we would have the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, the European Union through the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, the CSRD, and the USSEC, all moving fast on regulated disclosure, not just of emissions, but crucially of of climate action plans, of transition plans. And I think that's the other thing that gives me real motivation is that we're now moving to a point where people are getting a reel about what they're going to do in the next five years, what that means for their businesses in terms of, you know, investment strategy, product. And, and that's really at the center of our work in the Sail and Climate Initiative is that pivot towards real world action. And I think it is happening. And I think that's the other thing that can give us all, I, I think, a degree of hope that we can start to progress.
0: And that, you know, there's so much to unpack here. And maybe we just look at one of the successes that CIF has had, and that's in the Cyan climate. You know, it really has been, um, it's got so much attention in in recent AGM season. And you've done an incredible job on this. You know, some big names have put forward their transition plans, Shell, Rio Tinto, Anglo-American, Glencore, Barclays, Unilever. When we look at some of the results, When we look at the IA register, they list four votes among UK PLCs that experienced a 20% vote against transition plans. Glencore 24%, M&G, Shell and Centrica at just over 20%, while the vote in Barclays fell just short at 19.2%. So while it's early days yet, how do you feel it's working out and and what do you consider a success? A couple of things. One is,
1: is, um, just to reiterate, because, um, you know, these... These are all you know relatively complex things that um, for us the I, I would say that the single most important thing about say on climate was really much more about the focus on short term transition plans. The AGM vote or annual accountability more broadly is a very important feature, but for us, the single most important thing that we want to support um, all stakeholders to to really be enabled around is this idea of of short term detailed transition plans. We know all of us as investors, um, those of us who are also involved in running businesses or any organisation. Long term and you know high level sort of targets just in and of themselves mean very very little. Um, they don't allow us to get stuff done as the the executing agent. They don't allow our boards or our other stakeholders to really understand what it is that we're doing. If we think about, and we may come back to talk about policy and regulation, it means very little for a government or regulator to be told, oh, I want to have cut emissions by X by 2040. I mean, that tells public sector nothing about what is needed. So for us, actually, I would say the, the biggest thing for, with say, on climate is, is having been able to really support and again, we can dig into this more if, you, if you'd like to. The, the fact that that is really becoming a norm, that I mentioned the three big global disclosure standards, and they're all going to require in different ways, but with a degree of uniformity, that transition plan to be front and centre. We have the UK Transition Plan Task Force that um, UK Treasury launched at COP26, really visionary recognition by UK um, government that actually not only do a transition plan is critical for execution and for stakeholder accountability, but if you're a bank, and I was listening to the CEO of one of the biggest UK banks talk about this a few weeks ago, very eloquent on the point. If you're a banker, that transition plan is how you're going to work with your clients over the next few years, raising the types of funding they need, doing the M&A and the other things. So i would say for us almost that's the biggest single thing with the votes i I think it has been positive to see that there were concerns very valid concerns that we took on board um that with a lack of understanding and analysis there was a risk of rubber stamping of votes and certainly in the first year you you did see that where you saw Um, You know, north of 90 percent of shareholders supporting some plans that I I think is very difficult to say that are in any way, shape or form really Paris aligned. And in the U.S., we've not pushed with our partners for that AGM vote because points were made by leading U.S. asset owners who've had a tough experience with, say, on pay in the U.S., that that was risking actually giving a free pass to uh, U.S. companies that weren't really doing enough. So in the US, we've really just focused on the transition plan piece and not on the AGM vote. And we support other work through Ceres and other organizations, that, as you so, that look at alternative forms of annual accountability for US companies. But it has been great to see in, in the UK, now in Europe, definitely in Australia, which has been really interesting in Australia to see, you have had investors really step up. And you mentioned Global Climate Insights, and that is part of a whole group of um, NGOs that we are supporting to scale up, Transition Pathways Initiative, um, World Benchmarking Alliance, to analyze those plans. And here it is you're seeing significant votes against. And you mentioned some of the UK votes would have been very successful. In Australia, you had 50% of shareholders in Woodside um, and 40% in Santos voting against management. That is a real signal to those companies to do more. So so I think on the basis we're 18 months in, I, th- I think that instrument is starting to, to prove its value in certain jurisdictions.
0: That is it, you know, it's going to take time for people to engage with these plans. What I'm worried about is that we saw it within the, the remuneration report and remuneration policy votes here that perhaps not all investors are really engaged with these votes. So we didn't want to have this as an out for management to say, yes, this is, this is a great vote, we can just move on. I think the other thing that, that you've got across to, to companies is that it doesn't allow the directors off the hook. You know I've, I've seen a lot of the, the uh, CEOs and chairmen of these companies say, we're going to have this vote, but that does not absolve us from, from our obligations or responsibilities. The other thing is is educating investors like, like myself, or the portfolio managers how we use these votes? because the difficulty is we see some progress from companies. We want to say, well done. At the same time, it doesn't have those short-term targets and, and, and detail that you're looking for. So there's a little bit of confusion, I'm thinking, on, on our side of shareholders, or on behalf of shareholders, how we're voting. How do you think we can educate or how do you think you can take that forward?
1: I think um, you've already kind of touched on it, that it is exactly about education and about support. So one of the other reasons that I, I feel extremely privileged um, to be at CIF, you know, with this fantastic board and and leadership that we have at the foundation is a recognition that there is a need to provide certain public goods, um, education, but also the data and analysis that underpin those. So from well before I I joined SIF, the the leadership and and Chris and the trustees recognized the importance originally of CDP as a foundational piece of of public good data that is uh, needed to inform and enable investors, regulators, other stakeholders to play the role that they should be playing. Um, and I think that is a, um, you know, that is something that we're going to be doing more of. And again, very privileged to be in a position working with some other fantastic foundations that we will be making more of those investments to support you, John, and others who really want to lean into this. Chris Hone's view, and he's perfectly correct, uh, is that whilst compensation and pay inequality is an important issue for our society, climate is existential. And it, it's not only existential, but it's clearly becoming a, synonymous with fiduciary duty. And I think that's a really critical part is that it's not a straight line. As you've mentioned, there are you know, steps back on policy, but we all won't know where we're going over the next 15 years. Laggard companies who don't have the products who reputation gets damaged, who continue to have high emissions or exposure to high emitting laggards if they're service providers or in their scope three, those companies are just going to be bad long-term investments. And, And I think it's that that makes the real difference is that, you know, very rapidly, the most serious investors in the world are waking up to that reality. And it's that that means that just in a year, we've already seen now a lot of these significant votes land with... Percentages voting against management that you just don't see with, say, on pay. So I, I think that's, that's really the key that we, we all need to keep working together
0: on. You have touched on something really important there, which is the fiduciary duty. Um, and what we struggle with as a fiduciary is what can we ask of our companies? So we're very clear that we can ask our carbon-intensive companies to move where it reduces risk, where it helps them transition the business, or where it might enhance returns. When it's it's outside that, when there isn't a risk reduction or enhancement to profitability or a valuation uplift, it's very hard for us to to ask companies to move towards the one and a half degree scenario, for example. Because if we think of that one and a half degrees, right now with binding commitments, there's a 90% chance that we won't get there. So how do we develop or or, or push our companies that direction when we've got those constraints from our mandates?
1: It's a great, I mean, this is, this question is like the kernel of, uh, I think, what we all need to address collectively, um, and it applies, by the way, if we have time, you know, just as much to a debt investor, a private equity investor, even thinking about sovereigns um, in a different way. I think the key for us, and it comes back to the point I, I the 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 point I made a minute ago about activism. So. For sure, I think coming from a relatively passive perspective, you can say, well, look, you know, there is a limit to what I can push any individual company to do because we all know and we have to be realistic that with the exception of, I think, utilities in, in developed economies, where now it is just from a fiduciary perspective, insane not to be all in on renewables, there are limits. There, there are cost limits, particularly for first movers, to being the sector leader. And I think if you take a passive view and you treat the rest of the world as fixed, policy, regulation, um, the behavior of, of consumers as being fairly fixed, then for sure I think you do run up against that challenge where you say, look, I can't go all in on these first movers because we have seen cases and in you know in the consumer goods space, you know, um, we saw with Danone a situation where you know m- maybe there was a, a sense that in in some ways not so much on climate but in other sustainability issues they almost moved too far too fast on their own um the real key here then is to, to say but what if i'm not taking the world as given what if i want to be more activist than that as an investor and i think in here um and this is why i'm you know grateful for the opportunity to join you today and, and you know, maybe to have a chance to, to connect with some of those who are on the call. I think there's a massive question here for all of us about the future of finance and investment that I think every, you know we've all become in many different ways too passive. Even active managers who are taking active bets against benchmarks ha- have become too passive about treating the world as given, be it the quality of um, the boards that we in the companies we invest in about the scrutiny we make of their policies and their high-level strategy we're not there to micromanage but we are there to to look at, at high-level policy it's true for sovereign investors in the way that they engage with government if we're prepared to become activists then then it changes the equation so if you look at the auto sector which is a little bit the exception that proves the rule because we've seen more progress in policy and regulation in autos Interestingly, because many actors, including a lot of our civil society partners, have, have attacked, addressed the auto sector really through the lens of air quality, urban pollution. It's very clear that you needed to, five years ago, be backing the sector leaders, the, the companies that were going all in on pure EV battery strategy, who weren't trying to hedge their bets around hybrid um, certainly who weren't like some large Japanese um, companies. I mean, it's public. you know, Reuters had a story on it recently about Toyota very actively lobbying um, behind the scenes against ICE phase out. You know, we, we fund an NGO called Influence Map. I highly recommend the world's leading work on, on policy lobbying by corporates. If you're backing, if you were backing those sector leaders five years ago, you have absolutely hit it out of the park from a fiduciary perspective. Every time a country introduces an ICE phase out or brings the date forward, Volkswagen, not just Tesla, but Volkswagen and the other progressives who've got the big battery strategies, their their long-term stock performance is enhanced. They're going to take market share over the next 10 years. And, And the key there is that that can be replicated in other sectors. And the critical point there is, as investors then to start working with companies, working with civil society, going to government collectively and saying, look, we want to go faster. We want to do more, but we have to do that in a way that is sustainably profitable. And to do that, we need these other policies. It might be tax credits. It might be subsidized R&D. It could be emissions regulation, either within the sector or on competitive uh, substitute goods. You know, it can be areas like procurement and other types of regulation, enabling policy. This is the frontier. It's the frontier for companies to win long term for their shareholders. It's the frontier for investors to demonstrate to their clients that they are actually really driving the transition in a way that is totally aligned with fiduciary responsibility. And coming back to that that point about fiduciary responsibility, I, I think you know, for anyone who's listening, who's an active manager, I think people are going to need to engage with this model. You're not going to have an active management business in five years, unless you can demonstrate that you're really leaning in to the transition with that level of knowledge and that willingness to actually support companies to to change the world. And then that starts to address your point about the you know the binding constraints on on the transition at the moment. so let me stop there, but I'm happy to to dig further into the point but but I really think this is the epicenter of of what finance and business leadership needs to be thinking about now.
0: And it's a great example with the car companies you know it's a clear um, uh, direction of travel. Other sectors aren't so clear and and that's what's difficult is that you know it is on a sector basis we have to think very much you know in a nuanced way. When I think of the energy companies who've got a lot of pressure over the last few years, you know now it's moved on very much to their scope three missions What can they do, and that's the big challenge. What can we ask them to do? And they can't strand their assets voluntarily. There's no point selling them because that's not climate enhancing either. So you know it's, it's trying to determine where we go from from here with those with those uh, large majors in particular. Whereas other sectors we can see that there's there's a lot of ground to cover yet, so banks, for example, and I'd love to get your view on banks and their transition because it feels like this is only the focus is only coming on to banks now where the majors have it focused for quite a bit of time
1: so so just to, to pick up on the majors briefly, I think one of the one couple of the points um is exactly where philanthropy and government and those who can provide public goods really need to step in. I am acutely aware that I think that group who can and should be providing public goods have got a job to do in two respects in terms of supporting both companies and their investors, equity shareholders, but also you know, banks, uh, debt investors. One is at a micro level that there is more that we can do to, um, to really provide the analysis that is going to be needed to help people to understand the portfolio of assets that energy companies hold and to look at those in a very clinical very fiduciary to go back to your earlier point way and to understand that for a particular energy company they are going to hold certain assets that when you look at their opex their capex the life cycle the degree of flexibility or inflexibility in that asset does that asset make sense in a portfolio you know If you're looking at early stage, you know, deep or ultra deep water now, (laughs) somewhere where your cash cost is $40 a barrel, that really, really not clear that anyone should be undertaking that kind of investment. And we need to provide that kind of evidence base for for all stakeholders, including your investor colleagues on this call at a micro level. At a macro level, again, I don't think we've done enough to help all of us. And I think there are some, great work that we hopefully can support with brilliant people uh, through networks like the NGFS to think more systemically about this transition. We've certainly seen a, a curtailment of the long high end of the, the energy supply curve where a lot of that expensive fossil energy sits. We've probably not, we've we definitely not done enough to accelerate the clean energy we can see it in the finance numbers we're running at a few hundred billion a year where we need to be running at you know two trillion in that space we've not done enough to bring demand in so i think again, we need to support investors and other stakeholders regulators to understand at a macro level also much more what the energy system transition needs to look like that will help all of us to engage with the majors in a way that is science-based and climate aligned but also doesn't cause excess volatility in the market a small point i would add just on the majors is that we do need to see better conventional accounting separate from the the sustainability disclosure frameworks i talked about earlier we still have a problem that the big four and, and a lot of high mitting companies are not accounting properly for asset retirement obligations and for the 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 value the carrying value of assets they've got on their balance sheets and i think we need to do that in order to give people a clear picture. I, I just wanted, though, to come on a positive note on the majors. It's a great story, I think out yesterday in The Wall Street Journal about Chris James and the work that Engine One have been doing. So everyone knows this quite combative approach they took with Exxon as a major, which, to your point, you know, we're very big supporters of that. And again, to your point earlier that say on climate is about transition plans, maybe advisory votes, but ultimately about board accountability and about directors jobs being on the line. Chris James obviously has pioneered, you know, uh, a model where that that has been made reality. But now what he's doing is he's also working with other energy majors in in the US and he's brought three of them on board, sign up to this global methane standard and then to lobby government for additional regulation. So again, it's that example of how you can work as an investor with business to level the regulatory playing field to move faster. So a few comments on the majors, just switching to banks. I mean, I think this is a fascinating topic. I think that in a way, if you think about it, it's quite logical that banks like asset managers have a portfolio that is essentially like an large asset manager or owner, a mirror of the real economy. And so it's, it's, it's a very complementary but different thing that a bank needs to be doing. Banks got to be asking for emissions data. Many of them still do not demand emissions data from their, their large clients and their you know, large DCM issuers. That is ridiculous. And there's a lot of hand-waving at the moment. Oh, we'll wait for the ISSB. Even the Bank of England said that. You know, Andrew Bailey, when he was quizzed about it at Treasury Select Committee in January, said, oh, we're waiting for the ISSB. I mean, nonsense. <laughs> People should have that information now. But what's more exciting is, is that transition plan point. And, and this is exactly what Noel Quinn raised a few weeks ago at, at, at a G GFANS event. For him, this is, this is the future f- f- for his bank, is having all of those transition plans from major clients as a framework in which to do all of the business, equity, rights issuance, DCM, credit work, m a advisory, all of that work is going to hang off that transition plan. And so it is really in the interest of banks to be pushing forward. And you've seen already in the UK, Lloyds and NatWest saying, look, certainly for high emitters, I'm not interested now unless there is a, a meaningful transition plan. And I, I think we need the big global banks to get there very, very quickly. I think mean, their shareholders need to be asking for it. So shareholders in HSBC and Barclays should be pushing for that to become standard policy at those banks as part of their own transition plan is how they work with all of their big clients on transition. And and to finish the point, it's the same for insurance, you know, it's the same for private equity. It should be the same across all of those kind of entities.
0: And to that point, you know, I would I would add a couple where you you mentioned earlier on the the three trillion of financing that we need. I think one issue that, that seemed to come across in some of the bank transition plans this year was a, a retagging, if you like, of existing projects and therefore there was nothing additional. This, for me, is, is one of the challenges that we have to make sure that it is additional, not that would have happened anyway. Um, I think also there is an argument being made that they need to remain invested with their clients, not to divest, but I think that's a very different point than for us remaining invested in shares that are traded on the secondary market banks are at a crucial crossroads they're providing new capital uh, to, to the these companies and therefore they can have a much greater influence by as you said ensuring that they have transition plans, ensuring that they're winding down their fossil fuel um, assets
1: no well look I, that last point is a brilliant one. I think it's very clear that uh, investors and and those working you know elsewhere in finance across different asset classes have a different set of of roles and responsibilities to play and we need listed equity investors to hold board to account much more effectively we need private equity investors who really should be in the in the in the box seat frankly around this given the influence they have on management and strategy whereas you're right for for a bank there is a sophisticated role that they need to play around helping senior management and CEOs to think about if you're a laggard, do you need to do M&A in order to close that gap and you know combine that? What is the, what is the policy engagement that you need to have um, as a company we were talking about earlier? Um, so, so I think it's critical that those di- different actors in the financial system um, play those
0: different roles precisely. You touched on lobbying earlier on um, and you have mentioned elsewhere uh, about positive lobbying. Can you describe how that's a development on on the sea and climate, for example, if that's a direction of travel?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, well, well, to you know, the the to to use the simple example, just building on the point with Chris James and Engine One. So, you are clearly going to be at a disadvantage as a shale um, uh, company um, if you start to impose on yourself. Significantly stricter methane measurement and control requirements than all of your competitors. Um, you could, as an investor in the company, say, "Well, that's too hard," but that's just not good enough. I mean, we can have a separate conversation about shale in and of itself. I mean, you know, obviously, ultimately, the science is very clear that all, all these fossil fuels are going to need to wind down very fast. There's a separate argument about whether short dated short life cycle flexible fairly high cost assets are actually not bad ones to have whilst we're winding down and and scaling renewables because of the fact that they will switch off very quickly once they're no longer needed but taking that aside we have to crush methane emissions very very rapidly with the foundation of being involved with um leadership around the global methane pledge at COP and a new global methane hub that's been created to support exactly companies, investors, and, and someone like Chris James taking a lead with that and saying, look, I am going to support the companies that have the greatest ambition to get that positive policy in place that enables them to profitably lead on things like getting to zero methane. That that for him is a return seeking fiduciary action. And we can think of the same thing in a whole number of sectors. So we're going to support work In Europe, not just around uh, autos, but also steel and aviation, you've got certain, I mean, it's interesting coming from interesting quarters in the aviation sector saying, look, you know, the 5% current required threshold for sustainable aviation fuels, it's too low. We would like regulation to push that higher because we're only by scaling the the level of sustainable aviation fuel, are we going to achieve economies of scale? And start to get to the point where through learning by doing and coming down the cost curve we actually may have a chance of really accelerating um, emissions reduction in that sector we need regulators to provide enabling policies subsidies tax credits around things like the infrastructure at airports to support short-haul electric and sustainable aviation fuel but we actually need that regulatory minimum to go up so you've now got companies like Safran other engine manufacturers you've got some airlines you know not all of them you would pick as the green leaders who are saying please bring the regulation give us that tailwind and it's one thing to say global carbon price which is something that some ceos and investors have talked about in the past which let's be honest we all know is not going to happen not in some single you know unified way and that's a little bit disingenuous But to talk about raising the the minimum threshold for sustainable aviation fuel is a very sector-specific and reasonable thing to ask for. If I was an airline investor right now, I would be saying to my company, I want you front and centre of that positive lobbying whilst you position yourself as a sector leader. Because if your competitors can't absorb those increased levels of sustainable aviation fuel, then you're going to take market share.
0: Absolutely. And and so it's very... You know, lobbying obviously is extremely important then. And for us as portfolio managers, you know, we've got so much to cover. And, and even when people have large um, sustainability teams, it's a lot to cover. With Influence Map, they both look at the negative lobbying or anti or uh, not pro climate, if you like, lobbying and also the positive lobbying. So they give us a view. And, and how broad is their, is their universe that they cover?
1: So at the moment, it's focused more on high emitters. And I think, um, again, this is exactly the area where an organization that is lucky enough to be able to provide public goods. We, and along with other foundations and some of our key civil society partners, are going to be really looking to scale this. So the irony is we have brilliant people throughout the NGO world who know as much as anyone globally about green steel, green cement, sustainable aviation, fuel, electrification of transport. We've also got brilliant investor organizations, and I'm going to give a shameless plug for a couple of our partners. So IIGCC, the Institutional Investor Group on Climate Change in Europe and Ceres in North America, bringing those organizations together so that that technical sector expertise can really be put at the disposal of investors in a scalable way so that all of you can start to actually understand, well, this is the specific policy that Company X should really be asking for. It's their competitive advantage. It's precisely the kind of thing we need to come in and do to en- enable this to happen you know, faster
0: and at a much bigger scale. We work closely with IAGCC, uh, and I think it's a great organization. Another one I would mention is Global Climate Insights. You know, as portfolio managers, when we're trying to think of the detail, the, the, the particular detail on an individual company, th- those kind of organizations are extremely helpful. You talk a lot about policy at a top level macro, but actually, when you're, when you're doing it day to day, when you're at the, at the, at the, at the, the college, if you like, forgive the fun, Um, this is what we need is the detail of where and what questions to ask of the companies that we're looking to transition. You mentioned previously about NGOs being so important with this. So these are quite a number of examples. Where else do you see it happening? Where do you think that relationship grows to help us to, to, to do our job?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I think that, um, I mean, to an extent, we've we've covered quite a lot of it already. Um, you know, uh, CDP um, uh, as a really cornerstone organization for the the global transition. I mean, it's hard to overstate the fact that whether you're buying your data through MSCI or BNF or S and P or whatever. All of that corporate and city submission data comes from CDP. And the team there done an amazing job at getting ready to enable the disclosure also of transition plans. Um, and then downstream of that, again, we've already talked about um, many of these great organizations. I'd also mentioned Transition Pathways Initiative, mentioned the World Benchmarking Alliance. For those of you who've maybe not looked, World Benchmarking Alliance works with the French government, with ADEM which is an arm of the French government, on something called the ACT Framework. And what's interesting about the ACT Framework um, is very complementary. So most of you will be aware there's a Climate Action 100 Plus have a a net zero company benchmark that draws in analysis from Transition Pathway Initiative, from Influence Map, from Carbon Tracker. The World Benchmark and the ACT Framework goes a level deeper and starts to look, John, like the kind of data that you or I would have you do, and I would have put in a spreadsheet and actually start to build, you know, proper single company financial model out of to start to really understand what is this transition going to look like for top line, for variable costs, you know, for, for capital investment, etc. So I, I think there's where we, that's where we need to go with NGOs.
0: I, I agree because when, when you're looking through the, the lens from our side, you have to balance what's possible and, and what's real and getting that information really gives us the tools to then go and, and engage with the companies because fortunately on our side, the door is open to go and talk to management. It's it's the great advantage that we have. We can go and have a conversation with the chairman, CEO, or head of sustainability and talk about these issues. If we're well armed with the detail, then this really makes those conversations much much more interesting and much more uh, the potential for impactfulness is, is much greater. If we move on to the carbon offsets, because you obviously are very very involved there as well with the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets. Can you tell me how that's progressing?
1: Yes. So um, obviously, this area is technically uh, fairly complex. I think that this is exactly an area where we have to, where there is that real challenge to achieve both scientific rigor, climate rigor, but also recognise the reality of the real world in in a couple of dimensions. Ultimately, if carbon credit projects, if projects are done well, so there is real additionality and the permanence is measured scientifically, the buffers are large enough so that we really have a high degree of certainty that a given amount of carbon is really being sequestered in a way that it would not have been the case otherwise, then I think what we have on the other side of that is a very crucial form of financing flows for particularly low and middle income countries. So I haven't touched on this much, but SIF, we're very blessed as an organization that we have, uh, you know, I have colleagues in uh, Nairobi, in Addis, in Delhi, in Beijing. We work globally, including Latin America and South Asia. You know, we all know, and you t- we touched upon it at the beginning of the conversation, that we are facing a huge financing challenge. More than 70% of emissions reductions over the next 30 years are going to have to happen in EM. And right now, you know, it's a very tough financing environment. So where you've got high quality non-debt financial flows that can be stimulated, but in a way that is, say, totally climate aligned, where all the greenwashing by the buyer has been wrung out of the system and where all of the safeguards, all of the integrity safeguards have been put in place so that there's social integrity Um, that rights holders, indigenous people, local communities have been really brought into the centre of those markets, then I think those markets are very powerful. Um, What we're doing on the ICVCM side is is in the next um, 10 days, we're going to be releasing uh, what are called these core carbon principles, which are effectively a uniform set of principles that raise the bar and standardise the bar globally for what any of the individual carbon so-called standard set, the the entities that verify projects, what they need to do. And that covers both their own governance, but also it covers in more detail the the processes and the rigor and the science they need to be using when they're verifying projects. And then there's this accompanying assessment framework, which is where a lot of that detail of the science, uh, the additionality and permanence assessment uh, need to be. And I think the idea there again, John, you and you know, your listeners know this very well. All markets, particularly commodity markets, live and die on whether there is trust, whether there's transparency, and whether there's rigour. You know, it's it's easier, although not you shouldn't take it for given. And historically we didn't, right? That a bar of gold, you know, an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold, that a barrel of Brent is actually a barrel of Brent. You know, we took several hundred years with things like precious metals, establishing standards where there was complete certainty that when you transacted that ounce of gold, it was 24 karat gold. And we need to get to that same position where that that carbon um, property, right, in an economic sense, not in a legal sense, is totally trusted. And if we do that, then the market will scale gradually, but with high integrity. What we can't have is that market exploding and have crypto assets that are based on God knows what out there. And that was going to happen anyway. So much better for us to step in, create a framework, and ultimately look
0: to get that into regulation. That's really positive to hear because in some way I was very disheartened about carbon offsets. When I looked at them in, in various companies, it really felt there was no additionality. We had forests that were well protected, selling carbon credits. We had you know, issues with flagship carbon credit projects across emerging markets, so obviously it wasn't designed appropriately for the local communities. Um, so I wonder, is there going to be retrospective analysis or retrospective um, questioning of carbon credits that have already been used or do you think this will be a fresh start?
1: So, so it's quite a technical area, this about grandfathering of, of specific vintages. I think ultimately what matters is going forward um, that we're going to build a market that has um, that has that transparency and trust and that scientific rigor. Just to pick up on two of the points you just made briefly. So the Integrity Council on Voluntary Carbon Markets, ICVCM, which is really looking at the supply piece. There is a companion organization, uh, the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative that's backed by UK government, that is then looking at how companies are using uh, credits and what claims they're making, um, that is there to also support you as investors to understand are those legitimate claims, not just investors, right? Consumers are going to want to know this. So, I mean, between those two organisations, I think you will get a a lot more transparency. But then you touched upon a critical point. Our global financial architecture is not fit for purpose in multiple ways that we haven't had time to touch on. And we've been supporting governments South Africa and in Asia um, on just energy transition partnerships. Part of that needs to be about building capacity in-country to, to undertake projects, um, you know, the, the carbon credit projects in a way that actually works properly, John. Part of the some of the legacy problems that we've seen have just been a lack of capacity and people trying to rush things. So we also, and this is a role for philanthropy, need to support uh, ambitious but you know high-integrity partners on the ground. Um, and then that becomes a real win-win between... Uh, low-middle-income countries generating that non-debt cash flow, communities really being at the centre of that, but also having ambitious companies who meet the thresholds of their own mitigation plans, then also able to use these these credits in a way that is appropriate.
0: Finally, Mike, given your background, what does transition finance look like for emerging markets?
1: Yeah, you've, <laughs> you've finished with a, a very critical but tough question. I think ultimately, I mean, we still have a lot of work to do in both the positives of transition, positive lobbying, transition finance in developed economies and the accountability that goes with that. Ultimately, this transition is going to make or break on whether we can then build a system that enables low middle income countries to disclose at the same level, uh, develop transition plans that are locally appropriate that just transition elements is absolutely critical you know the jobs issue is big enough for uh you know developed countries but really critical in em but at the same time then access the financing i mean the gap is so large and so we are seeing again some green shoots you have some brilliant partners um in this space we work with a number of what we call these re who are um uh, pooled funds, effectively, for philanthropy. Um, technical experts who support a network of NGOs. So we have the African Climate Foundation, which has been been working closely with stakeholders in South Africa over the last three years. We have equivalent partners in South Asia. Um, work that we and others support with, you know, with the Chinese government, who are very switched on about transition plans. Um, the, the same in other regions. So. We, get, we, we have that sort of partnership to, to start to create those plans, then what does the financing look like? I mean, we need to think about the whole capital stack. And I, I think it's going to require a couple of elements. It's going to require asset managers to become very skilled and very activist in building transition funds that can really focus in on 20, 30 companies. Look, is it senior debt? Is it mayors? You know, maybe on the equity side, maybe it's private equity, private debt help the companies develop plans almost act a little bit disintermediate the banks or work with the banks on some of that both private banks but also both national development banks and the mdbs um i so i think we're then going to need asset owners to become much more progressive in some of their mandates we have a brilliant initiative led by the the um very unique adam matthews from the church of england where we have 12 UK asset owners that have said, we want to start putting money specifically into the M transition. How do we do this? Our own mandates back in the UK, are there barriers there? Then asset managers, what can you offer us in terms of transition vehicles that will really create that carbon delta? And it may result in your measured footprint going up. Brilliant. We haven't really talked, John, but it is a really important point decarbonizing your portfolio does not decarbonize the real world it's a really important point there can be times when divesting as an equity or a debt investor from a high emitter that is refusing to engage in the transition may be necessary it can't be an objective and it's really encouraging you asked earlier about positives a lot of the leading investment consultants are also now i think really starting to lean into this idea as well we're going to need all of them pulling together if we're going to get the EM um, transition finance piece right. So I'll stop there, but, it, but it's a huge topic that I, I think we need our industry to really step up on and there's massive business opportunity
0: around it too. You mentioned the divestment and decarbonizing portfolios. You're throwing out the data say this could go on for several more hours but it has been such a wide-ranging discussion. I could go on for hours just to hear about the the things that SIF is doing and supports the list of public goods that you're helping to put out there which wouldn't otherwise be when we think about additionality and impact it's absolutely hitting both and it's it really is truly commendable but for now mike thank you so much i really appreciate your time on this really scorching day in, in london <laughs> Pleasure, <laughs> John. In the top floor of, of a foam of house but thank you so much
1: great to be with you thanks uh,